Welcome everyone to Authors on the Air. This is my special edition of the Writing Icons. My guest today is the magnificent Dennis Lehane. Dennis, welcome to Authors on the Air. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I also have a guest host with me, Alan Eskins, who is an award-winning author. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the show. Good. Glad to be here. Um, Dennis, I want to say Small Mercies is just an amazing book. Um, your writing style and the way the nuances of your dialogue are so key, I think, to making this book special. Will you tell me how you decided to write this? Because I know you have written a lot about Boston and Southie. Well, I've written a lot about Boston. I've written, I've only written one book set in Southie, and that was The Given Day. Um, okay. uh, I'm like Bobby Coyne in this book. I, I, Bobby Coyne is my male lead in the book. He grew up in Dorchester, right over the line from South Boston. And, um, and that's, that's where I grew up. So um, uh, the book, the impetus for the book came from, I, th I think for years, for, I, I would say at least 15 years, I wanted to write a book about the busing crisis of 1974. And I didn't know um, quite how to tell the story. I, I tried various cracks over, over time. It was once a story, a big conspiracy thriller um, that was set to be a television show at one point. And it just ultimately wouldn't leave me as desire to tell that story. And then uh, the character came to me, Mary, Mary Pat Fantasy came to me. And the moment she came to me and I could see her in my head and it's, it's a reference in the book very early. Uh, she came out of the womb looking like somebody who was set to be in a roller derby. Like that's, that's paraphrasing, but that's, that's how I saw her. I saw her right from that. I saw her as this, this bruising, brutal, and yet strangely paradoxically sweet sometimes, but this woman like we'd never seen in literature to my, to the best of my knowledge, which was a woman who could potentially go, toe-to-toe -to -toe with a lot of guys and beat the hell out of them. It's interesting that you say that because I got that sense immediately when I started reading. Um, I had such a well-formed image of her after your description, which usually does not happen until later on in a book. So I, she sets the tone for the entire book, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You're going to be with her the entire book, so she better. <laughs> yeah, know. I mean, she she sets the tone. And, and when you first introduce her, she seems like a very frustrated lady. Um, she's got a lot on her plate. You never know if she's ever going to make ends meet and all. And I feel kind of a her tension building and just as though one more little straw is going to break her. Was that intentional or is that me, my image of her? Yeah, I never felt like she was um, breakable in that way. I felt uh, there's a there's a moment where Bobby uh, reflects on her and he says um, there was something at the core of her that was irretrievably broken. And, and that scared the hell out of him because a breakable person cannot be broken. An unbroken, an unbreakable person. Uh, I can't yeah. believe I'm mashing up my own words, but the it's idea okay. was that you can't coexist as both a broken person and an unbroken person. And she right. does. And that's yeah. the yeah. kind of the core tension to her is that she's both broke and unbreakable, which yeah. is a paradox. So it is um, very paradoxical. And that's how I saw her as as um 
as somebody who there's a line that refers to somebody else in the book, but it could just as easily re refer to her, which is, um, you know, if you, if you got to pick, if you pick a fight with her, with her, um, it's not going to be over until the coroner calls it, which is that, you know, she's, she's not going to stop until she's dead or you're dead. And that was, I, that was kind of the fuse I saw in my head for her. It's interesting. I'm trying to recall the women I've known throughout my life who are like her. Um, there have only been one or two and they scared me <laughs> because they're kind of unpredictable uh, in my, in my thought was they're very unpredictable and you had to step very lightly. You never knew which side you were walking on. So I, I found her fascinating, a very authentic character. Um, I want to back up a little bit. It's been five years since you wrote, you've been involved in television and film what compelled you to come back to writing, Dennis? Six. Five? Six years, sorry. Uh, six. Uh, well, um, I didn't. I never left writing. I left novel writing. Um, right. You know, I've been writing, probably put out more, more output in the last six years than I ever have in my life. But um, I, I was finding prose to be uh, far more difficult than it, it progressively with each book I wrote. And... I was also coming to terms with the fact that a book requires, um, it requires pieces of me that I wasn't willing to give while I was kind of a father to two young girls and trying to be there present, um, a single dad for a lot of that. And um, so uh, I noticed that when I write a book, it consumes me. When I wrote a script, it doesn't at all. It doesn't, it's a blueprint. I just wrote a blueprint, that's it. And so, yeah. So this novel came out the way that all novels should, I think, personally, or I, all my novels should, which is it came out just because it had to come out. It was just, I, I didn't ask to get knocked up, but I got knocked up and then I had to give birth. And this book was the way of giving birth. Can, can and, I follow well, up? Yeah, sure. Yes, uh, I'm going to let Alan Eskins is going to step in. Um, I'm the reader side of it, but Alan is obviously the author side. So please go ahead. And, and sure, go for it, Alan. I don't mean to jump in. I just one of my questions yeah. is on that point. Um, having written screenplays and novels, it sounds like which one brings you more satisfaction as an artist? Oh, novels. It's okay. not even, not even close. When you're when you're uh, you know, John, Donald Westlake had the line, which was, you know, a, a novelist is God, a screenwriter is God's tailor, you know, and and I think um, I, I I enjoy being God's tailor. I, I, I but I don't get when I'm God's tailor, I'm one of about 265 people working on on that on that finished product. So when I get to the end and I have, say, Blackbird, which is a show I did last year, you know, I'm very proud of that. But am I proud of the scripts? No, I don't even think of the scripts that way. I don't even print them. They just stay on my laptop. I just mess with them because they're constantly a work in progress. So that's the difference. A book is finite. A book comes out, it's this object, and you put it on a shelf, and it's, wow, that's a point of pride. I did that. Um, I would say, though, that, um, that I, I feel with a book, I need a, a, a true sense of passion to justify what it takes out of me as a writer. So I, I, I will, I have the luxury now being able to say this, which makes me very happy, which is I'm out of contract. I, I don't owe anybody anything. 
if I write another book, it's going to come from the exact same place this book came from. It's going to come out because it had to, not because there was a deadline. Well put. Uh, another one of my questions is, you you set this, um, you place this novel in the 1974 bust crisis, mm -hmm. and there's obviously an undercurrent of racial tension that goes along mm -hmm. with that. Um, how much of that is drawn from your personal experience growing up in that area? All of it. All of it. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, before I mean, they specific, started... Specifically in, in terms of the, the, the character's view towards racism and, and, and races, Mary Pat's view towards Mary, racism. Is that something that... Mary Pat, Mary Pat is, is, when the book begins, Mary Pat's husband has left her. And the reason he's left her is because of her hatred, which she doesn't understand. She's a grasp it. She doesn't see herself that way. Um, and she sees herself in comparison to all these virulent racists around her as reasonable. But, but she's racist. And that's the journey of the book is for her to understand how that racism and that hatred stained the lives of her children. Really, that's her journey that she goes on. And, um, and it was important to me to be honest with that. It was important to me not to pull any punches with that. And look, I grew up with people, tons of people who were, who were straight up racists, tons of them. And some of these people, not all, but some of them I loved very much. So how do you put that to those two things together when you're nine years old, which is how old I was when the summer 74. And I think that's what this book is. It's a, it's a 48 years in the reckoning. I mean, 48 years in the, in the waiting reckoning with that. How do you reconcile the people you care about when things with the ugliness that can be inside of them, you know, and there's ugliness in all of us. Um, I happen to have dodged racism in my component of ugliness, but, but, you know, I've got other parts. And I think that that's what this book is very much about is, is people, as Bobby says late in the book, you know, um, uh, the worst of us has good in them. The best of us has pure evil at its, at its, at its, at its heart. And that's, you know, that's part of what this book's about. Yeah. Um, I have a couple questions from readers, um, fans sure. of yours. Yeah. Um, Ruth Skolan, who lives in the Pacific Northwest, wants to know if, is it true that Stephen King wrote to you to tell you that your books got him through his accident? Uh, he didn't write to me. He put in the New York Times book review. It was, it was much better really than just cool. writing to me. It changed that my career. Really it was, it was, the was lead, so cool. it was the lead line of a, a New York Times Sunday book review on a J.K. Rowling book. Wow. Um, I, yeah. Another one, Linda Lee writes, are you going to write any more Kenzie and Gennaro books? I don't think so. Okay. Sorry. Alan, back to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have a, a craft comment and, and question. Uh, yeah. It, it focuses on specifically chapter 19, um, where Bobby is in interviewing somebody, I won't say their name, for the spoiler issues, but he's interviewing somebody. And so craft one-on-one -on -one would say, when you start out a, a scene in limited third person, where you're in the head of a particular person and it's third, the mm -hmm. third person narrative, you stay in that person's point of view throughout the scene. Right. Um, 
Creative Writing 101 also says, show, don't tell. And what you right. did in that chapter, I thought was really brilliant. Uh, he's interviewing somebody. And when it comes time for this person to tell, here's what happened in the past. If they had just told the story, you would have lost some of the value of the show, don't tell. And what you do is you shift point of views and you change the 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 font to let the reader know this is now a point of view shift. Now you're in the interviewee's head. Um, yep. I thought that was really, really brilliant. And I was wondering, how did you come up with that? Or, or where did the, the decision-making come to write the chapter that way? You know, you just, if you, I, I, I would teach, I would try to, try to get students to understand this. The reason you study the rules and the reason you should know all the rules and know them in your heart and know them in your bones is because when you want to break them, you know why you're breaking them, you know, and you earn it, you've earned it. And so with this, yeah, there was, there was some argument even with my editor at one point. He's like, how can you go in and out of that point of view like that? I'm like, cause I can. <laughs> cause I'm, why God. not? No, just cause yeah, why not? This is my symphony. I'm God. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? This is, I do this when you do it and it's clear that you don't know the rule. That's when it's not okay to break it. When you're like, no, you can't do that, dude. You know what I mean? Like, but if you do it in this circumstance where it's like, how can I convey what happened on that subway platform as best I can without having blocks and blocks of dialogue? Oh, I'll just slide into the character's head and I'll just give it to you. That's, that's really all it was. Yeah. And as a, as a writer, um, what I appreciate most about reading a novel is when I see someone like you, who's a master at craftsman, who takes these norms and says, okay, here's the norm. I'm going to turn it around so that it actually works better than the norm would work. So I, I, I applaud you and, and appreciate that. Oh, thank you. I, I know the very first time I ever shattered one was uh, when I was writing Mystic River and I did a, I did a flash forward of a character. Um, it just broke every rule of the book. It, I told you what happened to her life. A, we'd never been in her point of view. B, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit what happened to her life, right? But I knew in that moment, instinctually, I was like, "This will do so much for me because it will tell me that the person she's thinking about is no longer part of her life. It will foreshadow what happens to the person that she's thinking about by telling you where she is in her life twenty years from now." And and I was like, "Okay." I just, I'm going to shatter this rule and I know exactly why I'm doing it. And I did. And that was very freeing because the writers I adore are the ones who do that, but they don't do it all the time. They just do it. They do it when it's earned. Uh, and who are of, some of the writers that you adore, Dennis? That's my question too. <laughs> um, there's the one in, in genre very easily. I would say Elmer Leonard. I mean, I, I still read them oh, yeah. and reread them. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Richard, Richard Price was an enormous influence on me. Um, then when you get into adoration, adoration is people who I just go, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I could never do that. Um, uh, certainly Cormac McCarthy, certainly Graham Greene, certainly Toni Morrison. Um, I'll be honest. I don't, um, I don't spend a lot of time looking back back. Like I've read everybody, but I'm, I'm going to be, I, when people are always just like, Oh, Proust or Trollope. I mean, you know, no, not for me. I'm, I'm influenced by contemporary writers. I'm not, I just, you know, for the most part. So, um, the one I'm in love with now, head over heels. I've never met the woman. Don't know anything about her. I'm saying head over heels in a literary sense is a woman named Claire Keegan. Um, who to me is just, 
my favorite writer working today. Like I will read anything she writes. I read a grocery list. Um, And she writes these very small, perfect novels, very small, like 110 pages, set in rural Ireland. And they're just, uh, just astonishing. Uh, One of them was made into an Academy Award winning, uh, nominated film called The Quiet Girl. Um, And that was based on her book, Foster, which is the last book I cried at. Wow. Um, Dennis, you mentioned uh, when you're teaching, you know, you talked about when you're teaching and the things you say to your students and all. Um, I wanted to go back to when you were a student yourself at FIU North. You had a couple of pretty good teachers yourself, um, Jim Hall and Les Standiford. What did they teach you that you have not forgotten? Okay. I have to, I have to clarify that. Um, Les, I was Les's graduate uh, assistant. He never taught a class with me. I've never taken a oh. class with Les. Oh, okay. So, uh, but we've had a million great conversations about writing. I'm sure you have. Yeah. But um, Jim, I only took one class with him, which I, the only thing I remember from it was you have to bring, you have to bring a sense of new information to anything you write so that there's the, you should be aware that what you're, what you're bringing is kind of news from the frontier. Um, the most influential teacher on me in graduate school is actually a guy named John Dufresne. Um, and yeah. he's still there. He's still at FIU. Yes, he is. Um, I know. He, he was hands down uh, the most influential. He was the guy that the guy that would have let the grad students hang at his house and sit at his bar and drink his brandy and and talk. And that's what you learn most in graduate school. Is you learn the most from those things, those conversations. It's, it's less, I think, about being in a classroom. It's more about what's life for the working writer like, you know. And so, he was, yeah, he was, he was a great, great teacher for me. So is that kind of like I, I am always questioning why authors go to conferences um, like Bouchercon or Thrillerfest? Sure. Um, you, you know. Are you going to sit on a panel and teach someone how to write, or is the best part of that going and hanging out, metaphorically or literally, at the bar and talking with your fellow tri- tribe members? Is that the allure of it? Do you actually learn I think you something? Can, I think you can learn things from the, the panels. I think those panels at Butchcon are pretty damn good. I mean, they the organizers over the years. I'm I've been associated with Butchcon since '96. And over the years, I've seen some really kick-ass panels. I've gone to some, like as oh, just hung in the back of the room, you know. Um, so, no, I think, yeah, I think talking about writing, being around other writers, keeping your head in the mix is what you need until until the point where you feel like there's a point you get to where you got this. You got this. I got this. You know what I mean? Like it, but it takes a long time to get there. It took me, like I would say, 10 years after I started publishing to feel like I I got this. I think I can do this now. Like just not this feeling of, you know, somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, yeah, it's, you're good now, kid. Take it. You know, go. go. The world needs ditch diggers too, as they say in Caddyshack. So, uh, you know, the other thing I would say, which I do to this day, so I'm not being uh, arty, needlessly arty, is I think you should consistently be looking for places where you can learn new things, new talents, you, no matter how good you get. Like one of the things I 
just charge myself with right now in the show that I'm doing is I, I said continually to myself, I want to work with silences. I want to work with goes, what goes in between what people say to each other, not what they say to each other. And, and I really want to do it. And I want to drill down on that concept. And so I've been getting pushback from my network about one of my characters who barely talks. And I'm like, trust me, just trust me. Once I start meeting with the directors, once I start meeting with the actor, and once I start, well, you're going to get exactly what you want because I know what's going on in those silences. There's a lot to be said for action when, it, when it's silent. And mm -hmm. you can get a lot from nuance, from facial expressions, from other things. Isn't that true? Yeah. 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 I'm fascinated. There's a um, movie called Closer that Mike Nichols directed. And and all the major revelations that happen to the characters happen when they walk out of rooms. And then they come back. And it's clear that they processed something while they were gone. I love that. I just love that. I spent, I spent like, I st I've been thinking about that movie for 15 years. Wow. Wow. So. Alan, back to you. Okay. Um, if for the, uh, for the young writers who are watching this podcast, yeah. if you could recommend just one book in terms of writing craft that you think is the most valuable or very valuable in your experience, what book would that be? There's, if you're putting me on the spot to that degree, I will say that the book I would strongly suggest would be Story by Robert McKee, only because what it teaches is the stuff that doesn't show up in classrooms much, which is structure. So I'm weak on structure. I've always been weak on structure. So I like to study structure because it helps me, it helps me cling to it and to know that as I'm writing, that these, these things need to happen. Whereas if it was up to me, it would just be two people sitting in a room for 300 pages just shooting the shit. I mean, that's, that's how I write. And, but I understand that that's not why people read. And so I say, all right, how do I structure? How do I, so one of the concepts in story, I think that's fascinating is the just difference between wanting something and what you want and what you need. And, and he, he does a, does a good job explaining what that is. And I've taught that concept to students and it does help, you know, that, that what you want is the plot. What you need is the story. It's the theme. It's what it's really about. Um, so figuring out what a character wants and watching them pursue it. I mean, this is, I think David Mamet's, I teach a lot of David Mamet's early books on playwriting and uh, he's, you know, David Mamet says, if a, if a character wants something, the audience will follow. And I think that's true. So a great first line is not in my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me a, piece of advice which I've been turning over ever since. I mean, that is a great first line. But I mean, if you're going to be a, if you want to write a story that starts right away as an aspiring writer, a great line is Jim opened the fridge and realized he was out of milk. Very simple, but I guarantee you, your reader is with you until he gets that friggin' bottle of milk. I promise you, because you just started with a desire and a, and a very attainable want. I think sometimes, you know, writers think, well, once I get published, I'm a writer and I can, I can quit studying. So I, I so appreciate how you consider yourself a student constantly, constantly learning, constantly trying to build on your, on your craft. And I think that's very important for young writers to, to understand. 
if you get to the point where you think you've got it figured out, here's my advice for you, quit. Seriously, stop. Because everything you're going to write is going to bore the ever-living out of me. You know, writing should be written, writing should be produced in a state of fear. I believe that. You should be afraid. It should be scaring the hell out of you, whatever you're writing. Um, That's where good writing comes from. That's where good revelations come from. You're tapping things in your subconscious that you don't even understand until you write them. That's good writing. But the people who are like, yeah, I know I know how to do this. Well, you know, I, I mean, that treats it as a job, which it's not. It's not just a job, you know. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been speaking to writing icon Dennis Lehane, along with my guest co-host Alan Eskins. Uh, Dennis, I cannot thank you enough for spending time with thank us you. today. What thank you an very amazing much. conversation with you. And um, I hope I see you at BoucherCon in San Diego. Uh, we will be out there interviewing everyone in the media room. So I look forward to when seeing is you the again. when is the BoucherCon in San Diego? End of August, first week in September. Highly likely I'll be uh, uh, actually on location. We're shooting our next show, so I doubt I'll be there. Yeah. But, I, yeah. I, it conflicts with a lot of things. I want to just, just say thank you to everyone for paying attention. And yes. we'll see you again soon. Thanks, guys.